You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I have another guest or other guests from the HTA SIG. This time it's Anders Gost Rasmussen and Arthur Alignol. So stay tuned for more about EU HTA and S demands. Yes, S demands are of course also important in the HTA space. So how can we basically work with S demands in the HTA space? What are relevant HTA S demands? All these kind of different things. And where is the HTA actually coming from? PICO is there, kind of the interesting acronym to think about. The content of this one and lots of other HTA things you can find on the homepage of the HTA Special Interest Group, so check that out in the links of this podcast episode. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics in the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities and head over to the PSI homepage at psiweb.org to learn more about its activities and become a PSI member today. to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And this is the second podcast episode in a series of four episodes where I'm talking with members of the HTA Special Interest Group. And today I have Arthur and Anders here. So maybe you can first introduce yourself. Arthur, give it a start. Hi, everyone, and thank you for the invitation. So I'm Arthur Alignol. I'm an HTA and medical affairs statistician working at Daishi Sankyo Europe. And for what concerns us today with mostly HTA, I'm dealing with all the supplementary analyses that are required, asked by the different payer bodies, and I'm also helping countries on their dossiers and replying to questions. And before that, I worked at Merck in the epidemiology department as a real-world data scientist. And before that, I was in academia in Ulm for a postdoc and before then Freiburg for my PhD, both in Germany. Very good. Awesome. Anders. Yeah, my name is Anders Gorsasmussen. I'm working within HGA statistics in Novo Nordisk. So we have this, uh, this small HGA statistics group, which has now been in existence, I think, for a couple of years, a little less than a couple of years now. I think also see all these increased requirements we also have for special handling of HGA statistics tasks. And before I I joined this HGA statistics group. I was actually working within the regulatory space as a regulatory statistician for, for a little more than, than five years, actually. And before all that, I was, I was working within academia, actually working within real-world evidence, uh, so more specifically within, uh, within pharmacoepidemiology. Yeah, I think both your CVs speak to the point that when you work in this area, it's pretty important to have a broad background and 
to not have only worked on clinical trials, but also epidemiology, real-world evidence. It's very often I see people being successful in this area have this much more diverse, let's say, non-standard CV, which is great. So let's talk about a combination of two really hot topics. On one hand, it's health technology assessment and all what's going on there. And if you don't know what has been going on there, then scroll back to the first episode where we talked about kind of a lot of the current trends and the hot topics in terms of HDA, UNETA, and so on. If that doesn't tell you anything, have a listen into this one. And so on one hand, HDA, and on the other hand, S demands. Really hot topics that has been here for quite a while and has evolved over the last decades, I would say. First, it was really a missing data topic. And now it has evolved into much more than that, into something like really better understanding what we wanted research, what we're really interested in it. And of course, that has implications, not just on the regulatory side, but also on the HTA side. So with that in mind, Anders, maybe you can start to explain a little bit what is the current situation with estimates and HTA bodies? So thank you, Alexander. And I think first things first, one of the reasons why we thought it could also be interesting to take this estimate, the new HTA discussion also on the podcast here is because I think it provides a really nice intro to some of the things that we're dealing with in the special interest group. You're talking just before about the importance of, of having the breadth as a statistician also working with this. And I think estimates and how it fits into the HTA context is really a, about understanding and navigating, it could say, the different evidence standards of HGA bodies and regulatory. And then I think there's very much also an aspect of the processes that are involved in this from an EU HGA perspective. How do they look like? How do they align with, for example, the thinking around estimates? And then finally, I think the awareness and the dialogue that we are trying to raise from the special interest group perspective is also very much reflected in this estimate discussion. So I think it's a very nice uh, case of, of showcasing what this discussion, the regulatory versus the HGA perspective is all about. So you could say very briefly, and I'm sure most listeners of your podcast will be well aware of this, but I guess most pharma statisticians will be quite aware of what estimates really are at the moment. So the basic idea of an estimate is that, okay, instead of asking these sort of fairly vague open-ended questions like, okay, what's the effect of treatment X on mortality? You have to be more specific about what it is that you're asking. So you need to formulate your questions in a more precise manner. So the estimate idea is basically saying that, okay, you need not just this vague kind of question, you need to be explicit about what kind of population are you looking at. You need to be explicit about the treatment condition that you're looking at. So what are you comparing, what treatment are you looking at? What are you comparing it against? You need to be explicit about the endpoint. And then two important things, at least for this discussion, you need to be explicit about the summary measure that you're using to do the comparison. So is it absolute scale that you're looking at? Is it a relative scale? And then finally, the I guess most key thing or the new thing about estimates, which is this idea of needing to have a strategy for handling your intercurrent events. The key thing here is, so say that we want to address the effect of some treatment on mortality in a given population. So you'd ask the question, okay, in this population, what is the effect of treatment regimen X versus treatment Y? 
on one-year mortality as assessed by the relative risk. And then comes the handling of the intercurrent event. So you'd say, okay, you want this effect regardless of treatment discontinuation and intake of, for example, additional medication. So this aspect here, and this is a kind of estimate we refer to as a treatment policy estimate or pre-estimate days, you talk about this as the ITT effect. So usually when you go and talk to HGA bodies around this, I mean, there's, I think it's fair to say there's a strong preference for the ITT effects when you're looking at things from an HGA perspective. For example, back when the ICH E9 addendum came into review and was commented on by various stakeholders around the world, for example, the German Institute, so ICWIC, the Institute for Quality and Efficiency in Healthcare, which is the German Institute that takes care of health technology assessments in Germany, commented that they thought that only this treatment policy estimate or a composite estimate would be relevant for doing, you could say, the main analysis for things that would be used for HTA purposes. And so the treatment policy that would be of, of the greatest interest, I think it's important to understand what would be the alternatives, what kind of other estimates might you be interested in. So that could be, for example, an hypothetical estimate, so an estimate saying that, okay, had patients not initiated rescue medication, for example, so addressing this hypothetical scenario of a patient doing something that did not happen during the course of the trial. And the IGWIG argumentation here is, okay, why would you be interested in something that does not actually occur in real life? Something that is of more interest to us is actually what patients were actually doing within the trial. And importantly, and I think as a key criticism also of going beyond the treatment policy estimate is if you have to do these assumptions, if you're looking at hypothetical scenarios, you have to make additional assumptions, you have to make modeling assumptions. So there's a risk of incurring additional bias by going to things like hypothetical estimates. And of course, that's an issue. You cannot necessarily estimate things without additional modeling assumptions in the setting. And so it is preferable for from this perspective of making sure that you have a high degree of internal consistency of, of stick to the treatment policy kind of estimate. So I think IGWIG is probably the HGA body where we can see most explicitly their thoughts on what is appropriate in terms of the treatment effects that you're trying to estimate. But again, back to my initial point, I think it's fair to say that there is a preference currently also with HGA bodies for having these intention to treat effect corresponding to the treatment policy estimate basically for the reason that you can estimate, it reflects in principle what's going on, what you see in the actual trial, and it's something that we can estimate without risking a lot of bias. Yep. How is that different to what the HTA bodies have been coming from? Because when I started in this area, it was very much driven by Cochrane and evidence-based medicine, and there, everything was just about the PICO statement, population, intervention, comparator, and outcome. How is that different to the estimate approach? In a way, they are complementary. So the PICO put the frame into the research question you want to address, in a way, in which population you want to work, comparing which interventions on which outcome. Well, I think both approaches are complementary is because the estimates then add a precise way to formulate these research questions. So in particular, what the PICO don't mention are the intercurrent events and the summary measure. 
yeah, in this sense, I would tend to argue that these are very complementary approaches. Yeah, I think it speaks to when we do systematic literature reviews and things like this. We don't need to just look into PICO. We need to look into all the different elements of the estimate because otherwise we'll not be able to collect all the data that we need for indirect comparisons and things like this. And we might, you know, have an estimate from one study and a different one from the other study, and we shouldn't just match them together. I think that's a really important insight. Yeah, and I think that's also a reason why that I think historically there's also been a, making sure that we have all the data that we need for doing our assessment. That has been one of the reasons why there's been so much of a focus on ICC, basically, because if you insist that you as a sponsor need to continue collecting data also after patients have discontinued treatment, then you have the, the, the broadest possible data to make your inferences on, whereas you can say if you start opening up for other kinds of estimate, then that might be seen by some as a loop for collecting less data. And that's at least a, a concern that has been raised also by, by HTA bodies by going to something else than just the treatment policy setup. So in the last episode, we talked about UNETA 21. If you don't know what that is, go back to the other episode. So UNETA 21, what's their point of view on estimates now? So last episode, we were also talking about this. You mentioned before, Alexander, the PICOs, which are really the preferred way of formulating questions or clinical questions of interest for the purpose of EUHGA. So the basic idea being that, okay, once you're about to start your assessment, a questionnaire will be sent out by the assessors and the co-assessors to the member countries asking them about, okay, what questions are you interested in within a local context about this new treatment? So what will be your population, your intervention, your comparator, and your outcome? So in that sense, there's not, you could say, any direct mention within just this basic scoping process of the concept of estimates. So there's also no mention of, you could say, intercurrent events or of any kind. That's not to say that UNETA 21 so the draft guidelines that we've seen so far that they ignore the concept of estimates. It is actually described here and there in the current draft guidelines that we're seeing. But you could say it's not necessarily very closely linked with the way that these questions are formulated. I think it's nested somewhere in a guideline under sensitivity analysis. There, there you see a description of the concept of estimates taking, I would say, quite a bit also from the ICHE9 addendum and encouraging important things like, okay, you need to be clear about what is your main analysis, you need to be clear about what are supplementary analysis, and you need to be clear about what are the, the sensitivity analysis associated with this. And then it says, importantly, that member countries, of course, need to be aware of that it's important during the assessment whether or not the estimates that have been included in clinical trial protocol, the extent to which they actually measure up or match up with the PICOs that, that are part of the scope. And that sometimes, of course, member countries might be interested in different estimates that, that are not necessarily part of this, and that can be addressed during scoping. And that's somehow, that's buried currently in guidelines. So you could say there's not, if I was a member country, I would probably just formulate the PICO, whereas you could say if, if you suddenly start having a need for different handling of intercurrent events, for example, it's not exactly obvious how that will go down. Arthur, anything to add from your perspective? No, just echo that uh, in the draft guidelines we've seen estimates are mentioned in some in subsections, but it's, I don't see clear requirements on whether estimates need to be used, mentioned. 
etc. Yeah, I think it's what I hear is probably it would be great if they would have a much more kind of prominent role already in the scoping process. So you said that's about what is really needed. So you said we have a clear debate and clear requirements about these kind of different things. Because otherwise, as we mentioned before, you might up pooling things together that you shouldn't pool or provide answers to questions that weren't asked, missing the answers to the questions that were actually asked, but not clearly described because of this missing parts in the PICO statement as compared to the estimate framework. So let's go a little bit in terms of the relevance of this, let's say, more hypothetical estimate. Is that really completely out of the window here, just because eQuick doesn't like it? I remember once talking about someone at the eQuick and speaking about efficacy, and he was very adamant on the treatment policy approach. And I then switched the coin and said, and what about if, uh, safety? Would you then also assign all safety events here? And would that mean that if there's a standard of care and then you switch the standard of care to something else, all the new safety events would also be assigned to standard of care? And then there was some kind of, hmm, interesting. Maybe it's not as black as white. Why should we be maybe a little bit more open and flexible around the estimates and not only rely on the treatment policy or the composite strategy? Like already mentioned, there is really a strong emphasis on the treatment policy estimates and in, in also in the draft guidelines. We can think of a couple of use cases where hypothetical estimates would be interesting to look at. So, for instance, one would be the when we look at uh, overall survival in oncology and patients may switch over to the experimental treatment after. That's a case where you might think that the hypothetical estimates might be of relevance because control patients switching to the experimental treatment, if it works, you would expect a lowering of the treatment effect. So actually, for instance, the NICE is interested in these estimates, especially for cost-effectiveness modeling of what happens after treatment switch, and is also interested in any case to see this kind of effects, but other payer bodies are a bit less open to these approaches. I think one reason is what Anders mentioned already is that they require more modeling and supplementary assumptions, and yeah, that needs to be documented in judged and assessed. Yeah, I think it's also the relevance. So think about exactly that case that you just mentioned, where the standard of care is switched to the experimental treatment. Then it's the question is very much about, do you directly start with the experimental treatment or do you wait? And is that really the comparison that HDA bodies are interested in? Because that basically assumes that you make the experimental treatment available. Because otherwise, that comparison is of no help. So if you don't make it available, then standard of care, it's really about standard of care and not standard of care and then switching in case it doesn't work. So I think that is, it really needs to be looked into case-by-case case scenario. Also, what data is actually available? And that makes a lot of things much more complex. It's as usual. If you look into the details, then it becomes much more kind of harder and not as black and white anymore. Now, if we think about this case, 
then of course it's not looked into just from an HTA uh, perspective. All the timelines are now now changing, so that we need to look at it more from a holistic perspective, regulatory and HTA. And what do you think we can do to make sure that we have everything we need, both from a regulatory and from an HDA perspective, when, when things really happen in parallel, more or less? I think that's a really difficult one, right? I think we should also acknowledge the fact that, of course, there will be a need for asking different questions from an HTA perspective. So in some sense, you can say, I think maybe one of the things that is also a concern is that if there's too much of an estimate focus within an HTA setting, then maybe you, as, a, as if you're a member state and you need to ask a question, you would be more inclined to look at the estimates that actually have been defined within the study instead of, you could say, posing questions that are relevant for the health policy that you are interested in looking at within your specific country, right? But I still think accepting that there will be different questions, I think what we need to do is, of course, to make sure that we have these discussions also at a much earlier stage. So even though there will still be estimates that are specific for regulatory purposes and questions that are specific for HCA purposes, what we, of course, need to do is to make sure that we have the discussions about what the respective needs are at an earlier point, and then that we're able to cater for all of them. Yeah, and I think especially in the case that you just brought up with this oncology study and which to experimental treatment, or it could be also outside of oncology, I guess, that's a design topic that you need to discuss before you start your phase three study. And so having a discussion with HTA body at that point already is really important. Because when you have done the study, there's a lot of opportunities are lost thereafter. And if the, of course, things like operational and ethical considerations also need to be in place. Just to say, oh, it would be nice to have that. But if you can't really put patients into such a study, then that's nice to have, but it's not feasible. And having that kind of discussion also is, I think, important. Awesome. Yeah. And I think one other thing about that we need to be aware of also when we're asking questions using PICOs is, of course, that we intrinsically bake a lot of uncertainty into the PICOs that's not really present with the estimates, right? Because for a given PICO, because you, you haven't specified things as crisply as you have with estimates, you could have multiple estimates that are matching up with that. It could be multiple estimates, uh, sorry, multiple endpoints. It could be multiple time points and so forth. It could be multiple ways of dealing with intercurrent events. And in principle, when you are a manufacturer, then you would need to deal with all these different forking paths in dossier as well. So you're basically taking a lot of uncertainty and baking it into the question that you're asking and question that really what we try to do also with what we're doing with the UHGA. If there's uncertainty left on the table that we could address by being a little more crisp about the questions that we're asking, then I think it's definitely a venue that's worth exploring as well. Yeah. Anders, I think that was a brilliant closing statement. There is still a lot to do for us statisticians to influence these areas, as discussed in the last episode of the series, there's a lot of opportunity at the moment in and over the next years to influence this process. And sign up for the HTA SIG, contact the people there, go to the webinars, provide input into the draft guidelines, into updates, get in contact, and also raise awareness within your organizations about this really important topic. We as statisticians play a crucial role here. And in order to make sure that we have 
great medications, not only passing the regulatory hurdle, but also the HDA hurdle. We need to be at the table when these things are discussed. Thanks so much for both of you and all the best with your continued work on the HDA SIG. You're doing quite a lot of really cool things and very happy that you invited me to help you with this podcast series. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thank you. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who help with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. 